Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're looking at just verse 31, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. If you don't have a Bible, there is a blue English Standard Version right below and in front of you, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Before we hear God's Word read, let us go again to Him asking for His help. Our God, you are glorified when we understand you and understand your word more rightly. And so we pray that we would see the light of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Hear now the word of God. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. As most Cross Creekers know, every October in this church is Reformation Month. During the month of October, we take key reformational truths and we consider them. Some years we look at the five solas, other years we look at the five points of Calvinism, doctrines of grace. This year we will look at what I'm calling Reformation ologies, different categories of theology. Now, there are many ologies. We could have a Reformation ology for every single Lord's Day. There are so many categories of theology. So many things to cover. We won't be able to cover all the ologies in this single month. We'll look at five, and we will do so, as always, from a Reformed perspective. And the five ologies are teleology, protology, eschatology, oleotheology, and doxology. Those are mouthfuls, aren't they? They seem to be big words, and so they are, but they're not unmanageable and you'll know them very soon. Well, the word ology just means a word about, a study of, an account of, whatever the field is. So anthropology, for instance, is a study of man. Theology is a word about God. So this month, we're looking at five of these ologies. And we begin the series with Reformed teleology, Not Reformed theology, though that is a general category, but Reformed teleology, which seems like a made-up word, but it is not, I assure you. What is teleology in a word? It is a word about end, a word about a goal, a word about a purpose. That's what we have in mind here, purpose, the goal, the end of any thing, of any person. Perfectionists affirm a place for everything and everything in its place. Our God is perfect, and he has a place for everything in his works of creation and providence. Everything has an end. That is to say, everything has a God-given goal. Every creature, whether that creature is made in the image of God or not, has a goal, has a purpose, has an end. And certainly, image bearers have a goal or an end, a purpose as well reason why that we were created. Surely there are many purposes, many secondary or subordinate purposes 
Consider, for instance, a man who is a husband and a father. He has an end, he has a goal, he has a purpose as he relates to his wife, and he has a purpose as it relates to his children. But we're not talking about those secondary or subordinate purposes or ends or goals. We're talking about the highest purpose, the highest goal, which all of those secondary or subordinate purposes serve. You all know the Shorter Catechism, question answer one, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The Larger Catechism adds just a couple more words in the question, what is the chief and highest end of man? And the answer is, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. Not just the main end or goal, but the highest end of man, the highest purpose for which you and I exist is not self-glorification, but it is glorifying God. It isn't self-enjoyment. It is enjoyment in the divine, in God himself. And this is what we see in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So the point here in this message is everything is to glorify God in everything. Well, who is Paul talking to in this letter, in his first letter to the Corinthians? Well, obviously we know he's talking to the Corinthians. But this is a message not just for the Corinthians, but for all of us. So who does Paul have in mind? You, me, and our verse finds itself in, near the end of a section on Paul's warning against idolatry. Certainly, the worship of the, the true God and the reverence of idols are polar opposites. The heart posture is the same in that the heart worships the triune God or the heart worships the idol. But the object makes a world of difference, doesn't it? Triune God, the living God, or a dead, mute idol. The Corinthians were an especially spiritually gifted people, and that's uppercase S. They were significantly gifted by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But even more tragically, they are, they were, an especially divided people. They used their special gifts to minimize others, to look down upon others. Ironically, the spirit of peace and unity was being shushed by the sounds of self. As self-exalted self, the other Corinthian selves felt minimized, and so they felt the need to promote themselves over the other selves, and this resulted in church division. Paul, in this text and throughout this letter, is calling these Corinthians away from themselves, away from idolatry, away from self-glory, away from self-exaltation, and obviously then to love of God, to glorification of God, to true worship. It is true that humans are not the only ones that glorify God, willingly or not, the inanimate will glorify God. The inanimate simply means that which does not have breath, that which does not have life like you and I have life. 
We see in Psalm 19, verse 1, that the heavens declare the glory of God. How can that be? They don't have mouths which which to speak. But the Lord says that the heavens declare the glory of God. No sooner does God speak the heavens into existence than they shout praise to their creator. No sooner does the sun begin its course than it radiates God's shining glory. No sooner does God make the earth than it sprouts, than it flowers with worship. Even as the flower fades, its final phrase from its flowery mouth is glory to my creator, to my God. The heavens declare the glory of God. But the heavens are not the only thing that declares the glory of God. The stones likewise declare the glory of God. You recall in Luke 19, verse 4, at Jesus' triumphal entry, as men and women were shouting praise to their glorious king who's riding on a donkey, the Pharisees tried to shut these men and women up. And so Jesus shuts them up by pointing to the unshut-up mouths of stones, if you will. He says, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And is this not what the rock did in Moses' day when it was struck? Struck with awe, it poured forth watery praise to glorify that God of marvels? Well, the heavens declare the glory of God. The stones cry out that Jesus is the Christ. The water, likewise, declares God's praise. Psalm 148, verse 4 says, Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above. Even the water praises God. Even the water from above and below will worship God, will glorify God. And did not the waters bow humbly in glorified worship to the sun as he shushed them, as he calmed them? They knew their maker. They knew him who walked on water, that they did not have control over him, but he over them. And they bow humbly in worship. You are my creator. They glorified God. Well, that's the inanimate. Surely then, if the inanimate can reveal the handiwork of God and glorify God, surely the animate likewise, that which has breath, that which has life, Yes, let everything that has no breath pour forth speech day and night, but what about the, an- the animate? Consider the animals. Now, you can confirm what I'm saying by looking it up on the Google, by watching a few fascinating YouTube videos. But chickens sing at the drop of an egg. Hens have their own chicken songs. Did you know that? If you have chickens, you do. Our own hens' songs once startled me when they first began to do this. I was startled, shocked. What are they doing? Are they hurt? And our own neighbor's chickens seem to be a little more shocking in their cries and their songs. Like, what's going on? Are they hurting each other? No, no, no. They're not hurting each other. They're singing. They weren't in trouble. What are these little sisters doing? They're letting their sisters know that God has provided once again an egg. And as she hovers over her her nascent egg, she recalls to our minds the spirit of glory 
who once hovered over his creation, giving life to an unformed earth. And this same spirit of glory who now indwells us, giving us new life, that we might give all the glory to the Lord of glory, even Jesus the Christ. Or consider at the birth of this Christ, what were the cattle doing but lowing lofty praises to their creator who owns the cattle on a thousand hills? Or consider what was going on at the manger. What were the sheep doing? The sheep were bleating because of the soon bleeding Lamb of God. Let everything that has breath glorify God. Consider the animals. Watch the angels. The angels are no different in their end from the creatures here on earth. Consider Isaiah 6. What do the seraphim and the cherubim do all day, every day, but sing hymn 100? A heavenly favorite, holy, holy, holy. The angels at the birth of Jesus shouted glory to God in the highest. The angels glorify God. But surely the demons do not. Surely, we object, they don't, they don't glorify God. If there's one creature that does not glorify God, it must be the devil. It must be the demons. Well, they don't willingly glorify God. They don't bow humbly, submitted to their maker. No, they rebel against their maker. But that does not mean that they are not used to glorify God. James says that even the demons believe in God and shudder. They glorify God as they tremble before him because they know that they are not God. They know that they are not the Holy One of Israel. They know that they are not the Creator. The demons knew Jesus to be the Holy One of Israel. They knew his glory. Oh, they hated him, but they knew or in the book of Acts, the evil spirits did not know the, the seven sons of Sceva. Remember that account. But they had no trouble acknowledging the glorious God-man, Jesus the Christ. Surely, this means that God is glorified even as he deals with, even as he addresses evil, sin, sinners. And this is one of Paul's points as he lays out a very hard truth in Romans 9, 22 and 23. Perhaps with Proverbs 16.4 in the background, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. The Lord uses even the wicked to glorify his glorious name. God desired to show his wrath and his power. And so what does he do? He waits and waits and waits patiently. He endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. He waited and he endured. Why? To make known the riches of his glory to vessels of mercy. Or consider Philippians 2, that all are to glorify God. The purpose of exalting Jesus the Christ is in all creation glorification of Jesus. Philippians 2, verses 9 and 10 summarizes, God has highly exalted him. The Father has highly exalted the Son, Jesus the Christ. Why? So that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Christ's humiliation bleeds, quite literally, into his exaltation for the glory of God the Father. The Son's purpose was to glorify the Father, and you and I have no different purpose from that, to glorify God. And the Psalms end rather fittingly, don't they? In Psalm 150, verse 6, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And if you didn't get it the first time, you get it again, praise the Lord. Let everything that has no breath pour forth speech. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, glorify the Lord. So who is Paul talking about? Who is Paul talking to? You. Me. What does he want us to do? In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, what are we called to do? What are you called to do? What has God called me to do? I hope it's clear by now. To glorify God. Children, three questions for you. hope your parents prepared you for it. I trust that they did. You have to answer these loud and clear so all can hear, okay? It's the wisdom we learned from Buddy the Elf. All right. Question one, who made you? God. Oh, what a robust answer. Yes, okay. Well, that was an easy one. How about a second one? What else did God make? Everything, all things, yes. Why did God make you and all things? For his own glory. Oh, parents, does that not enhearten your hearts to hear the voice of your children? Oh, congregation, to hear the voice of your covenant kids here? Glorifying God. I was made to glorify God. Amen. What does it mean to glorify God? It does not mean to make God glorious. It doesn't mean to make God even more glorious than he already is. You don't have God, for instance, on any given Lord's Day, running at 70% glorification, and he is just really depending on your and my praise to get him to that 100%, that level of maximum glory where you can feel like he's God again. No. You don't make him glorious. We glorify God by showing forth his glory. We glorify God by declaring God to be most glorious. Now, when we look at something under a microscope, we we magnify it. We are not making the object bigger in reality, but bigger in our vision, bigger in our appreciation, our understanding, our love for it. Likewise, when we see the glory of God in creation, and certainly, maximally, as we behold our God through his word, we are not making him bigger. You cannot infinitize an already infinite God. You cannot make him more glorious. But what you can do is what God calls us to do through his servant Peter. You can proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light of the Son of God. You can proclaim the excellencies of God who created you. You can proclaim the excellencies of God who redeemed you. You can proclaim the excellencies of God who is sustaining you day by day. 
Now, you and I are in a creational category that is both unique and superior to all of creation. Human is special. What is man that God is mindful of him? Yet, in the same psalm, man is crowned with glory and honor. This is not an eternal glory, of course, the kind that only God has, but it is a reflection. It is, at a creational level, glory and honor. Although the angels glorify God in the heavens, they do not do so as redeemed image bearers. Angels are not image bearers, and they are not redeemed. So again, we are in a special place where we can glorify God, where humans alone are made in the image of God to reflect God, to serve God, to represent God. And we glorify Him as redeemed, as bought the price. And so if, if everything in creation exists to glorify God, if the heavens declare the glory of God, if the very stones would cry out, if the water pours forth speech, if the chickens sing a song, if the cattle low lofty praises, if the sheep bleat for the bleeding lamb of God, if the angels declare glory to God in the highest, if even the demons shudder and glorify God, and even the unregenerate are created for the purpose of glorifying God, how much more shall we who have been saved by the grace of God, glorify our glorious Redeemer. Where do we glorify God? We're talking about you and me as a subject. And the verb is glorify. Where do you do it? When do you do it? Well, you do it from all that you are. And you do it in all that you do. We might be tempted to put into various compartments sacred versus secular in such a way that we have to be super spiritual on Sunday, but less so on the other six days. Today is a day that we really need to glorify God. And then the other days, take it or leave it. Our focus doesn't need to be glorifying God. Sometimes we, we have that mentality, don't we? And sometimes we fall into the trap that we can glorify God with just our minds. I think we Presbyterians can fall into this trap more than other denominations can. If we just think deep thoughts about the Lord, if we just consider the Christ with lofty language, exalted thoughts, then we will have glorified God as we are called to do. We divorce our human makeup when we adopt a Roman Catholic theology or a revoice theology. God created us as people whose feelings, thoughts, and wills must all align for the singular purpose of glorifying God. Consider just one text that hits at the, the feelings in Deuteronomy 28, verse 47. God has, is speaking to the second generation of Israelites, and in this text, he commands joy. He commands joy. And we might object. We say, well, I, how, can I, how can it be commanded to me? I, I, don't, I don't feel it. How can you command a feeling? How can you command an affection? And yet, he does. 
Because you do not serve the Lord with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies. He's saying, you have not considered the abundance of all things. You have not really contemplated the riches of the grace that I am pouring out upon you. And you haven't served me with joyfulness, with gladness, with cheerfulness. God wants us at the level of the affection. He wants us to really want it. (laughs) He wants us to truly be joyful, to truly be cheerful. God commands that we glorify him with all of our emotions and that in all of our emotions we still have joy. If you need a New Testament counterpart to that, Philippians. Joy. We cannot say, well, that's just the way I feel. Of course it's just the way you feel. No one's arguing against that. But when have we believed in sola feels? That's not one of the solas. And doesn't make it right. Doesn't make it God glorifying just because that's the way you feel. Your feelings must focus on glorifying God. And why? Because there is one who, whose affections are for you. There's one whose affections are pure. And that is your creator. That is your redeemer. The one whose affections are pure, the one whose affections are for you, asks you to glorify him with all of yours. Our feelings must glorify the Lord. Our thoughts, likewise, 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, we take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. All godless thinking, all God-denying, fine-sounding arguments, just throw them in the trash can. If it contradicts God, if there's no hint of glorifying God in that thought, it's not a, God, it's not a godly thought. Our thoughts must be subjected the Word of God, how I think about God, how we think about ourselves, how you think about worship, how I think about God's kingdom, how I think about the church, how I think about my spouse, how I think about my kids, how I think about my parents, how I think about my job, how I think about those relationships, how I think about my driving, how I think about my giving, how I think about eating, how I think about drinking, how I think about insects. How I think about anything and everything must be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. To glorify God, I need a worldview that can hold the weight of glory. My feelings must glorify the Lord. My thoughts, likewise, must glorify the Lord. And my acts, my wills, as we see here in verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Or consider 2 Corinthians 5, 9, that we make it our aim to please God in all things. The Lord Jesus does not say that all will know we are His by our feelings. The Lord you know, knows because you have just wonderful, sweet affections for Jesus. The Lord doesn't say that the world will know us by our great thoughts about Jesus. Jeez, did you read his words on that page? Such lofty thoughts about Jesus? 
Those are important, and we will not discount them at all. As I just said, your feelings and your thoughts must align for glory. They are important, and without them aligned, we fail to act with honesty. We fail to act with Christian integrity. But what does Christ say? He says that we will show our knowledge, that the world will know we are His by the love we have for one another and the obedience we have for Christ. Love acts. Love does. Love doesn't just feel, though it does. Love doesn't just think, though it does. Love also does. It performs. It works. One way that we glorify God is through performing all of those wonderful works that God has prepared before us, that we might walk in them. Let Psalm 86, 11, and 12 be the theme of our heart's daily prayer. Unite my heart to fear your name, God. I give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Unite my heart to fear your name, God. With all that I am, I seek to glorify your name, O Lord, forever. We glorify God by having and by showing hearts full of thanksgiving, by having and showing minds that think of God rightly, and of having words that speak of Him truly and joyfully, and having lives that are full of awe for Him, and that seek to serve Him in all that we do. So we glorify God from all that we are, our affections, our thoughts, and our actions, and in all that we do. In both the seemingly mundane and in the heavenly, we glorify God in everything. Now, we have not been walking through 1 Corinthians chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And 1 Corinthians 10.31 is in a context, which I mentioned. But it seems like everything that comes before it or after it can point to verse 31 as far as how they are to live. Because Paul says... Whatever you do, if you eat or drink, whatever you do, you do to the glory of God. So how are the Corinthians going to glorify God as Paul, as Paul instructs? And remember, these are not just instructions for the Corinthians, but they are for Christians. These instructions are for you and for me. We glorify God, in verse 112, by destroying division and by seeking unity for God's glory. And what's the ground for that? Because Christ is not divided. And so we seek unity. And we eschew division. We glorify God in, first, in chapter 2, verse 8, by seeking true wisdom. Not worldly wisdom. But what is true wisdom? Well, Paul says it is the glory of Christ crucified. And so we seek the crucified Christ, his wisdom. That's, one, that's another way we can glorify God. We can glorify God in chapter 3, verse 6, by seeking godly growth for the glory of God, knowing that God gives the growth, and he does so for his glory. You do not grow yourself. If you grew yourself, you could glorify in yourself. We glorify God in chapter 4, verse 1, by savoring the apostolic mysteries, those 
wonderful blessings and promises that God has given in the Old Testament that find their fulfillment in the New. God's mysteries are revealed progressively for His glory. We glorify God in chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, by purging evil, by promoting church discipline. Paul even says to them, gather, assemble for the purpose of removing the evil in the name of Jesus, he says. Another way of saying that would be assemble for church discipline for the glory of Christ. We glorify God in chapter 6, verses 5 through 7, by seeking legal resolution. By not taking brother or sister to court, but by having the matter resolved legally or with, with mediation, if necessary. We even glorify God by allowing ourselves to be defrauded, Paul says. In chapter 6 through chapter 7, we glorify God by seeking God's glory in our own sexuality and in our own parenting. Whether you are single or married or you are a spouse who has been deserted, abandoned, you can still glorify God in the calling in which you have been called. In chapter 8, verse 9, we glorify God by removing stumbling blocks, the stumbling blocks that hamper your and my relationship, your and that person's relationship. And how can we do this? Because Christ has removed the greatest stumbling block for us, our unbelief. We can glorify God in chapter 9, verse 2, by giving up our rights, by not insisting on our own way. We remember that love does not insist on its own way. Because the Son gave up His right for our gracious right of adoption. We can glorify God in chapter 10, verse 14, by fleeing idols. Because idols are not worthy of our worship. Or chapter 10, verse 31, we glorify God by eating. Whether it's that filet mignon or the quinoa and kale salad. No judgment. Filet mignon's better. Or in verse 31, we glorify God by drinking. Whether it's that draft root beer. Henry Weinhardt's, or plain water, if you want that lacrosse stuff, LaCroix, whatever it is, with a hint of, hint of, a hint of, a hint of, of watermelon, if that's your thing, okay. You can still drink that and glorify God by thanking Him for it. One man says, the glory of God is not minimized or insulted when it is brought into our menu choices. God can truly be glorified and expects to be down to the last French fry. It's not an endorsement for McDonald's, but you can eat a French fry to the glory of God. In chapter 11, we can glorify God by communing with Christ and our siblings. God is glorified when we are together, when we are fellowshipping with one another, when we recognize our common union in the common Christ. In chapters 12 through 14, we glorify God by using our gifts that have been given by God for God and for the edification, for the peace, for the purity of one another. They're all from the same source, the Spirit, and they're all for peace. We can glorify God in chapter 13, verse 13, by loving one another. Because God so loved the world that He gave us His only begotten Son. We can glorify God in chapter 15, verse 58, by being firm in the faith by laboring hard for Christ, knowing that our labor is not in vain because He is our resurrection hope. 
You notice that the whole resurrection chapter is supposed to culminate with that purpose? It's a glorious resurrection chapter, but it is to encourage the Corinthians that their labor is not in vain. That death, that sin, does not have the last word. We can glorify God in chapter 16, verses 5 through 9, by submitting all of our travel plans to the Lord, and by even praying for travel mercies for the glory of God. What does all this mean? But this, that all of our living is to be an act of glorifying God. When this service concludes, glorify God as you talk to that visitor. When you eat your lunch, glorify God with thanksgiving and joy at his daily bread. When you take a nap, glorify God for the, for the time away from work and the time for renewal. When you wake up, glorify God by returning to evening worship, having a fellowship meal before. When you put your head on the pillow, glorify God by remembering his sweet promises that he neither slumbers nor sleeps, but is sovereign over your body, over your soul, over all of your plans. When you wake up, it's Monday morning, and you feel like you have the case of the Mondays, that's all right. Glorify God by managing your time and your responsibilities well. When you have to have that hard conversation, glorify God by being committed both to truth and compassion. When you drive on the road, glorify God by being controlled in your tongue and your heart toward others. When you teach those little ones at home, glorify God by teaching them the truth. Glorify God by teaching them with patience and with love for them. When you moms or dads change that baby, empty the dishwasher, glorify God for the little one who is before you and for the clean plates that you can set food on to feed your family. When you dads work on that house repair, glorify God for the hands to do so and the many YouTube tutorials that, that aided your way. When you students attend hours of school each day, glorify God with attention to the subject and with gratitude to God that this is a field of study, and as you study it, you study the creation of God, your creator, your maker, your redeemer. When you elders visit the sheep, glorify God by knowing them, by cherishing them, by guiding them into the truth. When you deacons prepare the budget in the next couple months, glorify God by being good stewards of the money. When you mourn the loss of your loved one, glorify God with your faith-filled sorrow. Yes, you can mourn. Yes, you can grieve. Do so with hope. When you consider your or your loved one's cancer, don't waste it. Thank God for it, even though that's hard to say. Thank God for it, for by it he will be glorified. Glorify God even by saying, I wouldn't have it any other way. Because God is all wise, and he is all good. And even as you draw your final breaths, glorify God saying, take my life and let it be 
wholly consecrated to thee. A year before Calvin's own death, he wrote to the Prince Antony of Porcien, a French official who loved the Reformation. He was all in when it came to the cause of the Reformation. But sadly, he was poisoned at the age of 26. Calvin was twice his age. After commending the man for his courage and God's clear and abundant love for him, Calvin urges him to be steadfast in these final days, short as they were, and to obey God, quote, who has bought us at so dear price that he may be glorified in our life as well as in our death. Glorify God with your life. Glorify God in your death. We glorify God in life and in death. Why? Because Christ glorified His Father from life to death for us. We exist for God. He does not exist for us. And yet, God gave. God the Father gave His only begotten Son for you and me. The Son left eternal heavenly glories to live, to die, and to rise from the dead for us that we might glorify Him. I often say this at baptisms, Romans 6, 4, we were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Christ gave up His life for us, that we might glorify Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What more can we say than what is written in the Psalms? Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Let's pray. Lord, glorious God, we do thank you for this word of exhortation in 1 Corinthians ten thirty-one, that we are to have glory as our singular focus. That is why you have made us. And we are thankful, O God, that you are by your Spirit transforming us from one degree of glory to the next. And we pray that we would be faithful. We pray that you would transform us more and more into the image of Jesus. And we thank you for his finished work. We thank you for what he has done to save us. In his name we pray. Amen.